February 17, 2018 in Bahrain, looking at teaching methods and being patient while teaching. So th this, this kind of thing where the students can give their own opinion and they can say, I don't like this. I like this more, I like this less. And, you know, if we had had more time, you could do that activity for half an hour and really get into why they like it and why they do it. So you notice, especially those of you who were there yesterday, you notice that we used um, some different teaching methods, yeah? And also what you want to do is you want to know when to change your teaching methods. So some of that comes from experience, and there's not really a substitute for experience. But experience in and of itself is not sufficient. Because if experience simply means doing it over and over and over again the wrong way, you know, it has to be properly understood experience. And this is why we talked the other day about also cooperation between teachers. That we can talk about, well, this worked for me, this didn't, and this worked for me, and this didn't. Now, a really good teacher, a master teacher, does some planning for each class, but also doesn't make the plan the master. The plan is the servant. So we want to, we're, we're looking at flexibility while teaching, and we're also going to look, what time do we want to end? We're supposed to end at 11? Was that the plan? Or 11.30? 11.45, you're saying. What is the... What are, what are you... Which one? We have 11, 11.30, 11.45. Which one? I can sit for a whole day. You can sit for a whole day. I can't sit for a whole day. Problem. <laughs> what were you planning? I know, but what were you thinking? What time is it? Yes. Okay. 11.30, is that okay with everyone? So you want to have flexibility in teaching methods two times. One is when you're planning. And the other is when you're teaching. So when you're planning, you know, each of us has our favorite methods. And they're our favorite methods because it's the way that we learn best, or just because we're lazy and it's the easiest way to teach. I was looking at an article yesterday about how in the modern world, everything is about convenience. Fast and easy. By the way, what mode of nature is that? Ignorance. Ignorance is I want everything to be easy. Whatever is the fastest, easiest thing doesn't matter uh, the consequences. So, just to be honest, honesty is good, yes? Okay. You can pretend I'm not talking about you, I'm just talking about me and then You won't be offended. But just talk about me. So I'm going to want to teach in a method where I'm learning. So I have my favorite ways to learn. I have things I like, ways I like to learn and ways I don't like to learn. So I'm going to probably teach in ways that I like to learn. 
And I'm also probably going to teach in ways that are easy and fast for me to prepare because I'm lazy and I'm busy. You know, I'm both lazy and busy. So I'm not going to want to take a lot of time to prepare, especially not regularly. Now, one thing that I did when I was teaching all the time is I would use vacation times to prepare for the whole year. Because what I find is that if you just try to prepare before the class, there's often no time, especially if you have young children and you have a husband who might be also like a young child. <laughs> but you know, so if you... <laughs> so if you have your young children, if you have a husband, if you have a job, if you have different say that, you have so many things, and then you have things you like to do. <laughs> so it, it may be difficult, you know, every week I cannot spend one, two, three hours to prepare for a one hour class. But what I would do is I would prepare, and you have some vacation, yeah? Mm -hmm. So I would take the vacation, and I would take a few days, like three or four days. Not a lot of time, but I would just be working eight hours that day, and just be preparing for the year as much as I possibly could. So getting everything in order, getting all the materials that I wanted. And after you've been teaching the same curriculum several times, then you already have most of your things. Uh, there was one, not a devotee, but one very expert teacher that I, I, I knew. And she had a whole like cabinet full of materials and activities that she would use every year. And what you can do is each year on your vacation, you prepare a little more. So first time you do it, it will be a big job, and then after that, a little more, a little more. So if you do that, then it's much easier to be flexible. Because otherwise, if we don't have preparation time, at least I, if I don't have preparation time, I'm just going to go to what is the fastest, easiest thing to do. I have to. I don't have a choice. <laughs> you know? It's just like if somebody gives me three minutes to prepare for a Bhagavatam class, or if they give me three hours to prepare, you know, it's not the same. So if you want to have a variety of method, you need to have some time when you actually prepare. The other times when you want to be flexible is when you're teaching. Because no matter how you prepare, things don't always work. You have in your mind it'll be like this, it'll be like this, but it may not work. And what you, what you don't want to do as a teacher is to try to force something on the children simply because you prepared it and you liked it. So in, to give an example with teaching adults, so one time it was Madhvacharya's appearance or disappearance day, I don't remember, and I was in London. So I had prepared for a long time, maybe one or two weeks I had been working, not all day. I was studying Madhvacharya's philosophy, and I had made a, a very detailed class of Madhvacharya's philosophy. So, you know, I'm on the Vyasa Sun and I'm giving this class. And the devotees were just kind of like, (laughs) 
And I could see nobody was engaged. Nobody was interested in Mahacharya's philosophy. So after 10 minutes, I said, okay, I thought to myself, I have to give a different class. And then I gave something without preparation. I just spoke and said, just did something else. So you want to be responsive. Right, what they say, I don't have any. So you'll just have to, can you make a mental picture? I don't have a, I don't think that. Is the, is the pen here? Oh, look at, you are really prepared. Do you have an eraser also? Look at this, a whiteboard pen? Yeah. Is this white, it's not going to mess up the light? No. Okay, do we have any? I can just put them on the empty space. It's fine. So this is a, a very simple model, not just for teaching, but actually for life. You have a goal. You know what you want to achieve. Then sensory acuity means you pay attention to what's going on. You are using your eyes, your ears. And not only your eyes, your ears, you're using a a kind of like intuitive sense. Is it working? Just, just in ordinary life, if you want to go to some destination. Like the other day I took a walk outside the complex on the main street. And before I turned, I looked at the, what are the flowers, what are the, so I know when to turn. So then when I was walking back, I had walked past it. And I thought, this is different. That is sensory acuity. You know, something doesn't look right. I'm, I'm going the wrong way. And then you don't just keep going. You turn around. So when you're, when you're teaching anybody, if people are tired, if they're distracted, if they're not behaving properly... Uncomfortable with the light and... The anything. Well, you change something. You change something. So if, if you, but you need to notice. Now, many times, if things are not going right, we don't even notice. I've seen many teachers, things are not going right, and they just keep going ahead with their plan. This is just like you have passed your destination, and you just keep going. You don't notice. Wait a minute. This is wrong place. Other thing that people do is they just try to force everybody. Like, be quiet. They try to use discipline methods and usually some sort of punishment or harshness to try. Either they just keep going and they're not noticing what's going on. So the children are fighting and they are playing and they are spacing out and the teacher is just at the front giving a lecture. You've seen this? The students are on Mars and Jupiter and Saturn, and, and the teacher is just 
And then we did, and we did, and the kids are like, <laughs> and the teacher doesn't even notice. It's like the teacher's in a different universe. And the other thing the teachers do is, hey, and they're trying to force the children to go along with their plan. That would be like you're driving down the street and you're going the wrong way and you're trying to bend the road. No, let me pick up the road and bend it to the way I am going. Now, in my experience, neither of these things are effective. They don't work. So what is our main goal of doing the Friday-Saturday school? What is our number one goal? They will learn about Krishna. Why? Why do we want them to learn about Krishna? According to my uh, understanding, I want to make them feel first that uh, we care for them. Okay. That's why they are giving them the best. Why do you want them to care? Why do you want them to feel that you care for them? First, we should attempt to turn to our subject. You want the students to be attracted to your subject. Okay. Why? Because I want to uh, show my uh, concern and care so that they, then they give their uh, attention to me. Okay. So that then I can go ahead with my teachings. As, like, okay. So I want them to know that, that you care so that they will care and they will give their attention. Why? For what other purpose? What is your, what is your main purpose? To connect them. With? Krishna. With Krishna. So our main purpose is to connect them with Krishna. We want them to know about Krishna. Why? We don't want them to know about Krishna like some scholar. I am studying Krishna. We want them to connect with Krishna. Why do we want them to know that we care? So that they will want to connect with Krishna. Am I correct? Is it correct? We want them to actually connect with Krishna. You know, we're, we're more interested in that than we are in the technical, do they follow this rule properly, that properly? Do they know this sloka? Do they like me? Do they know that I like them? Yeah. So we always should keep this in mind. This is our destination. The other things are like, I make a right turn, I make a left turn, I put on my signal. I, those are those kind of, I make sure there's petrol in the car. Those are the, the kind of things you mentioned are those kind of things. But I need to know where I'm going. Why do I need to know where I'm going? Because I have to be able to change the other things to get there. When you're driving, sometimes there's a detour. What do you call it? Do you call it a detour? Detour, yeah. Use another name in Britain, I forget what it is. So sometimes there's some construction, there's some accident, there's some problem, and you have to go another way. And if you're only focused on, I have to turn right, I have to turn left, I have to... Then you'll not achieve your destiny. They say if you don't know where you're going, you probably will not get there. <laughs> you know, so the main thing is that the children should be connecting with Krishna, with affection. That is our main purpose. And for children, I mean for anybody, we're much more likely to do something if there's pleasure in it. And Krishna consciousness is pleasurable. People ask me, here they ask me in the last few days, how do I make Krishna consciousness fun? I say, you don't have to make it fun. It is already fun. 
You can ruin it, but that but if if you leave it, it is fun. Because Krishna is fun. Our understanding of God, we don't understand God to be this, you know. You are going to heaven. Very good. And you are going to hell very bad. That is not our idea of God. He's not some boring old person. He's young. He's youthful. And he's very playful. He's, he's fun. Krishna is fun. Balaram is fun. Lord Chaitanya is fun. Varaha is fun. Nisimhadev is also eating him. They're enjoying. And if we are conscious of them, we are enjoying. Actually, Prabhupada says, if you are not joyful, then you cannot be making advancement. So, Keval and Nandakanda, it's a fun process. So we want the children to experience that. And children naturally want to have fun and play. You know, once we become adults, we may think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have so much fun. But the children are not thinking like that. So this should be our primary goal. And if it's not happening, then we change something. So we need to be able to change something in the moment. And we need to be able to change something in our planning. So if we've made my plans... And I tried something, I say, well, it didn't work so well. The children didn't like it, or, you know, it took too long to explain, or I thought it would be a half an hour, we finished in five minutes. If you're, you're trying it, and you find it doesn't work, then you make an adjustment. But at the time, you also need to make an adjustment. So, again, this is, you want to be devoted to the goal, not to the details of how to get there. I'm thinking about how one devotee, Prabhupada saw he was becoming a little overweight, and he said to him, you should not be eating so much prasad. And the devotee said, but Prabhupada, when I came to Krishna consciousness, you told me to eat a lot of prasad. And Prabhupada said, did you believe me then? He said, so you believe me now. (laughs) So we have to be willing to shift to achieve the goal. You know, when somebody is, is 20, 25, you say, you should get married. And when they're 65, 75, you say, now you should no. renounce. So, instruction is not always the same, even for the same person at different times. Does this make sense to you? So to be able to do this, to be able to have variety in your planning, because not, why do we want variety in our planning? Because each person is an individual, and each person will have a different way of connecting with Krishna. They will not all do it in my way. Some of the children will connect through art, some of the children, they won't care about it. It's not that if you're doing art, all the children will be happy. Some of the children, they don't care. Some of them will like music. Some of them will like logic. Some of them will like movement. Some will like to work with other children. Some will like to work by themselves. You know, we're different. And so you want to have in every class some variety. And then you don't want to repeat the same exact thing every class. So within each class variety and from one class to another, to another, to another variety. Yes? Regarding the variety, yes. Every kid has a different energy level. Yes. Usually more than we have. Yeah, of course, of course. 
So while keeping in the, regarding the word variety, energy level plus the way they want or they want to learn about Krishna, these two things are mm-hmm. contradictory. Well, you can learn about Krishna in an energetic way. Especially the younger children. Yeah. Especially younger children. You definitely do not want to have everything just sitting. I mean, we had to do... The other, actually, they were doing that thing with the Govardhan Hill thing. That was sort of sitting, but it was active. So you want some things that are active. This is one problem with having like a classroom situation yes. for your school, honestly. But there is no other way also. If 142, 162 children are there, definitely we have to bifurcate that. Uh, okay, but even in the rooms, one benefit of the room is that those are empty rooms. Because you don't have chairs in So they like to move, mm-hmm. especially the boys. Yes. yes. <laughs> the modern educational system is favors the girls, you know? Yeah, we cannot, uh, we cannot blame them because the school, they are sitting. Yes, and it, is yeah. not, it actually is not natural mm-hmm. for children, especially boys, to just be sitting. Yeah. So don't have only sitting activities. Is it okay if we bifurcate instead of ages, boys, different girls, different? Sometimes. Maybe not all the time, sometimes. Or according to like the taste, like you say, yeah, taste. Sometimes. Taste you know what is nice to do? What's nice to, what's nice to do, I like that you're saying this, is you can have flexible groupings. So you don't have to have the same children. I mean, this requires some management. Okay? This requires some management. But it's worth it. So whoever is in management, they, it's, a, it's a little confusing, but you can do it, that the children are grouped one way for certain things, and they're grouped another way for other things. This requires changing in the middle of the class. So it's a little complicated, uh, but it can be done. And it's, it's a very favorable thing to do. So they're not always in the same group. I mean, honestly, grouping by age is like, it's not that all the six-year-olds are the same. That uh, continuation of that only, uh, but I I generally uh, uh, experiment in my class uh, that uh, uh, any game I will bring. Maybe it's not Krishna conscious, but I want to connect with Krishna. So I tell before starting, like two two partners will come. So before they start, they just close their eyes and they have to chant the Hare Krishna mantra. And as soon as they finish and start again, and that time then they chant. They're like so excited, and that we know that is Krishna. That always you know they will remember Krishna. That's good. I mean, one thing I'm concerned about is you only have like one and a half hours once a week. So if you only have one and a half hours once a week, you want to have everything really, really connected. You have so little time. And these children, honestly, their Krishna consciousness the rest of the week is probably very small. Most likely that these children, the other days, are doing almost nothing. Probably they're just going to their parents' altar and offering their obeisances. And they're eating some prasadam. 
I think so. Probably most of these children during the week, they're not reading books, they're not doing practically any sadhana. This is, you, you really have this one time. So I would hesitant, be hesitant in this one time to just play Scrabble or, or something like that and just add a little Hare Krishna to it. But I would, I'd like to see that you really had something. That at the end of the class, I make sure. That's my suggestion. You have very limited time. I think in that time, it should be very direct. That's my opinion. You know, if these were children who were, you know, if their parents were homeschooling them and they were having morning sadhana every day, that would be a different thing. But then you could have a, just a social time with the other kids. But I think in this time you want it very direct. But it should still be fun. Like you said, you can prepare before you say, uh, be prepared for the year. Same yes. teacher, I don't know about because I don't uh, come to this class, go to class. This, but in general, like teachers who are teaching, they can also prepare together. Oh, observe yes. Observe what needs yes. to be done. So that saves time. Absolutely. And then we are prepared for the two teaching yeah. children. Like Which I don't, I guess you weren't here. We talked about this two days ago. You Actually, I was, I okay. Yeah. Actually, I sorry, I can say I, I am not a regular scholar, but I because I came to that day and listened to your uh, talk two days back and inspired me a lot. Oh, thank you. So that's uh, thank and you. And you answer so many of my questions. Thank you. Thank so you and uh, I think that teacher, not only formal teacher, needs this in a day-to-day -day life. We Absolutely. have to learn this, so yes. that's how... Absolutely. I mean, this is true in your own home for your own children. Yeah, this also. is relevant. Absolutely. But especially when you're teaching a class. Yes. You know, and yeah, we had a little session the other day where the teachers, we didn't have much time, 10-15 minutes, so where the teachers got together and did a little planning and, and we talked about how you, your point is really important, that it's so much easier if you don't have to do it by yourself. Saves you so much time yes. if you don't have to do it by yourself. I wanted to look for just a minute at these papers that I gave you. I, I'm sure you've seen these. Uh, you may remember these from when I was here a few years ago. I think it's now like three and a half years ago that we were first giving the training. So we have some list of different teaching methods. I mean, I've seen lists of 150 methods, uh, but this is dividing it up into categories of reading, lecturing, visual tools, discussion, rote repetition, practical demonstration, practical experience showing in field trips. So uh, this is a kind of an overview. I'd like us to take just a, a couple minutes, if everyone just take a couple minutes, and, and read this over. that we didn't list separately games, because we were talking about games, I'm just realizing we didn't list that separately as a different teaching method. Uh, it kind of usually combines practical experience and practical demonstration. But I think I'm going to go back to this file and, and add that as a, as a separate method. So you want to be familiar with these methods, and what you would like to do to become master teachers is you'd really like to look over what you're planning on teaching and saying, how many methods am I using? I should be using at least two per class, maybe three. 
and I should not use the same two every week. I mean, it was really interesting to me, even, you know, going to university with some top, top professors, they tended to use just the same ones over and over again. Uh, so, again, we have this tendency, we're going to use what we're comfortable with. Now, I'm sure a lot of you remember this, we did a lot of work with this a few years ago. A lot. And uh, this little matrix is extremely helpful for planning your classes. Now, you also want to know this stuff. You really want to know this inside and out and backwards and forwards. An example of the importance of this, you all cook? Everybody here cooks? Yes. Do you all cook? Okay. So, uh, recently I was staying with my three oldest grandsons who were in university, and the rest of the family had moved, but I was just there with them, and we were sharing the cooking. And so one of my grandsons, every time, was making just the same two or three preps. And I said, I want you to learn principles of cooking. So I tried this way, that way, and then finally I said, look, just use a recipe book, use a cookbook, and by trying different things, you'll gradually understand one of the principles. Some things you should boil, some things you should fry, how do you tell when it's done, how to use the spices, right? There's certain principles of cooking. And once you know the principles, you don't have to exactly follow a recipe anymore. Right? Or you can follow the recipe, you can change it this way, that way. Oh, okay, I know I can use this thing. And to be a really good cook, I mean, even not like you know, restaurant chef, but just to be a, a decent cook. You have some idea. Steaming is for this, boiling is for this, frying is for this, baking is for this. This is how I know something is done. This kind of thing goes with this kind of thing, and this kind of thing doesn't go with this kind of thing. What spices can mix, what kind of preparation mix. You know you want to have some things wet, some things dry. Right? You get the principles, and then from the principles. So you want to do the same thing with teaching. You want to know these things, really just know them, so that they become a part of you. And then you can easily, this allows you to easily innovate while you're teaching. Just like, you know, you know, sometimes you go into your kitchen, you think, I'll make this and this, and then you look in your refrigerator and nothing, it's not there. Right? Or maybe you're going to go shopping tomorrow. You were supposed to go shopping today, but something happened and it didn't happen. So now you have to go shopping tomorrow. And so you look in your refrigerator and you're like, there's nothing there. You know, when you look in your cupboards, like, it's not, what will I do? But if you know the principles of cooking, you can create something out of nothing. Yes? We have all done this. Everything, we've all done this. You invent something. I have this thing and this thing, this thing, what will I do? So you want to know the principles of teaching like this. You know, you've had this plan, you do this, and you get there, and the children are not attentive, and you can change. And you can take one or two minutes to try to get the children to use discipline to try to get. But if that doesn't work, then you want to change. You want to shift something. Well, maybe you shift a little thing, like this child moves over here or something. But you want to you want to shift, so that you have to know these principles. So this especially is something you should just really know this stuff. There's there's no substitute, and the only way to get to know it is to use it. You'll not know it just like you're memorizing for an exam. 
it, use it. Especially you want to get out of these two columns. And especially you want to get out of these four squares. So most of the education that goes on in school today is in these four squares at the top left. In fact, a lot of it is just in these two squares right here. A lot of the education, modern education, is just in knowing verbal and mathematical, and that's all. And please remember, if you do an art project, but the children are just doing what you tell them to do, then it's not actually visual-spatial. It's still just knowing. You're not getting to the higher levels if you're just repeating. I saw an art class once. Where they just gave everyone a measured piece of clay. Weighed piece of clay. Everyone said, okay, everybody do this. Everybody do this. Now do this. Now everybody do this. Now everybody do this. Everybody do this. Now you have a turtle. Take home, show your parents. But it was simply a class. It was not a class in art. It was a class in following directions. You understand? Teacher says, I do. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not learning anything. I'm not learning anything of the principles of clay. I'm not learning how to work with the clay. I'm not really learning anything about creativity or form or relationship. I'm just doing what I'm told like a machine. So you really want to be careful that you, you can, and to get out of these two or maybe four squares, to get to the rest of these squares, you have to actually try it. And it's good if you have like kind of a backup plan, so if you try something that doesn't work, you can try something else. Does this take some effort? Of course. But in the long run, it takes less effort. Why? Because the children are more engaged. And they're happier. And when they're more engaged and they're happier, your work is less and your happiness is more. Yeah? If the students are enjoying what they're doing and they're engaged, and then you will finish teaching and you will say, ah, I feel energized. And if the students are undisciplined and fighting, then after teaching, you're like, I need to go to sleep. So you might say, oh, Armila, this is a lot of work, and I don't have any time, and I have five children, and my mother-in-law, and my auntie, and my cousins all living in my house, and I have a cow, and a goat, and a sheep, and a dog, <laughs> I have no time. But this, this is a wise investment of time. And you don't have to do it all in one day. You know, you can learn little by little and improve little by little. So you want to examine what activities that you're doing and see that you have some different places. So I don't have time to teach this again today. This is just a review class. But you want to make sure your activities are in different places. And you want to make sure if the children are bored that you can change to a different place. It's usually a good idea to have a plan for more than you can do. So if something doesn't work, you have something else already in hand. There's no problem if you finish each class and you did not do everything you wanted. There's a big problem if in the middle of the class, all of a sudden, you don't have anything to do because your plans didn't work. 
So, what are you going to change according to? You're going to change according to the weather? Are you going to go outside or inside? You're going to change according to the energy level you feel in the children. If they're very restless that day, you're going to do more physical things. If they're more quiet, you're going to do more quiet things. You want to change according to how you know your students. That takes a little time. What do they like? What are they good at? And you want to change if you start seeing you're getting bored. Now, a key point is you don't want to wait until all of the students are really bored. As soon as you see a little bit, then you want to change. It's best to change when the students are still mostly excited. Do you know why? Because that way they will associate that excitement with the lesson. If you wait until most of the students are bored or undisciplined, then they're going to be emotionally associating boredom and dissatisfaction with what you are teaching. So you want to change when it's still a high point. So you have enough activities and you change when there's a high point. And if you start seeing there's a problem, you change. Again, your, your goal is, I want the children to be connected with Krishna. I want them to enjoy connecting with Krishna. And how you're going to do that will vary. So I want to look, this is just an overview. We don't have time in this time to really go into details. I'm depending on you to take these and study them. So I wanted to look also, you don't have this paper, this is just me. I wanted to look also at being patient. And I will tell you right now that one of my biggest problems is impatience. And not by my nature, I'm a very impatient person. Part of that is probably just my nature, and part of that is probably growing up in New York City, where impatience is in the air. You're breathing impatience all the time. Everybody is rushing. You know, and if there's a parking place, you have to get it or you will never park. People are a little aggressive. So when I became a teacher, particularly even just becoming a mother, this was a problem. I mean, it's a problem for me with adults also. If I'm impatient. But with children, it's particularly a problem because children, especially young children, they don't really have a sense of time or urgency except if they want something. (laughs) If they want something, then they want it right now. But if you want something, they don't really have a sense like that. You know, like little children, once they learn to put their own shoes on, we have to go. I want to put my shoes on myself. Let me help you. No. I do myself. We have to go. The program is starting in half an hour. We have to go. Put your shoes on. I do myself. And if you're not patient, you'll go completely crazy. I tell people with children, you have three choices. You are patient. Somebody else is taking care of your children, or you go crazy. That's all. You know, they want to feed themselves, they want to put on their shoes, and they don't know how, and they're doing it wrong. And, and you're just like, let me help you. No, I do myself. <laughs> yeah? And then how long does it take for children to learn? You tell them something, right? 
don't we children, you tell them something immediately they understand and they do, right? No, you have to tell them again and again and again and again and again and again. For years. For years. Years and years and years and years and years. Whatever it is, be nice to your sister. Why are you wearing your shoes in the house? Make your beds. Make your beds. Whatever it is. Over and over. You know, if you think about it in school, you know in school we're teaching the same things over and over again. I used to wonder when I was a student. I thought, they are telling this. Why are you teaching me this again? But because we need a lot of repetition with children. And if you're not patient, again, you'll just simply get very frustrated. Because no matter how impatient you are, they're going to take time. There's nothing you can do. Nothing. There's nothing you can do to force or to rush learning. Cannot be forced. It's like you cannot force somebody to physically grow up. They grow up and they grow up. Some people they're going to enter puberty at 12, some people at 9, some people at 15, and you, it is what it is, what it is. You can't, you can't force it. In our modern society, we try to force everything. We are pouring all these chemicals into the ground to force the plants to produce. And these people that are eating meat, I don't know if you know what they do to the animals, but they are trying to force the animals to grow fat very fast. So they feed them antibiotics. Somehow if they feed them antibiotics, it makes them grow fast, fat faster. They also feed them female hormones. You know that? Because females carry more fat than males. Our fat to muscle ratio is different. So they give the animals estrogen and antibiotics to make them fat. And I have heard like the chickens, they will keep them in a dark room all the time because then they get fat very fast. So these poor animals, you know, and they keep them in little crates where they can't move so that they don't, they, the meat is tender. It's so horrible. So my point is they're trying to force these animals to get big and fat fast. And because of that, they are, I mean, it's bad enough they are killing them. That is already terrible. But even before they kill them, whole life is a hell. Not just they are killed, whole life is a hell. Why? Because they're trying to force. You know, even that we are flying in all different food from all parts of the world. In America, all year you can buy strawberries. Strawberries naturally grow in America in June. Maybe June, maybe July. But you can get strawberries in America in December. Because we're forcing it. And, and in general, there's this mood. Hiranika Shippu did this. When Hiranika Shippu became king of the universe, one of the things he did was he forced all the plants to bear fruit and flowers out of season. So things have their natural, they have their natural season, they have their natural rhythms. Right? We have our natural time for sleeping, for waking, for eating, for everything. It has its natural rhythm. And we are, we are going to be happiest if we work in accord. This is part of being Krishna conscious. This is Krishna's nature. So we also need to work with the natural development of the child. 
And children require a lot of time and a lot of repetitions to learn something. Now, if we're repeating the same way over and over and over and they are not learning, then we have this problem. So if I'm telling my child over and over and over again to make their bed every day, and I'm using always the same method, and it's not working, then I don't keep using the same method. I use a different method. I change my method. I mean, you can think of this like, if you meet somebody who only speaks Russian, and you're speaking to them in English or Hindi, Speaking louder will not help. We used to have these videos of the Ramayana and Mahabharata, and we had them with English subtitles. But we also had a few copies in only Hindi. And I remember one time I made a mistake, and this was the old machines where you put in the tape. <laughs> I don't know if any of you remember. So anyway, I made a mistake, and I put in the one that was only Hindi. And I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, it's not loud enough. I can't understand it. I turned up the volume and I'm like, oh, there's no English. So if someone only knows Russian, speaking English, speaking Hindi loudly to them, it doesn't, it's not going to help. So if something's not working, doing it more, doing more of something that is not working is actually a little crazy. But we do this all the time. I tell the children something. If they don't listen, I say it louder. If they don't listen, I say it louder. Then I am screaming. If they're not going to listen for a verbal thing, then screaming is probably not going to help. Then have to do a different way to be a little creative. So that's another kind of patience. One kind of patience is to be willing to repeat over and over, and another kind of patience is to have this flexibility that we were talking about. By the way, this is true with ourselves also. If we are, uh, I've noticed in Krishna consciousness that something. Uh, very deeply personal that I could maybe share with you is I've noticed that my biggest problems in Krishna consciousness and I've been trying to practice Krishna consciousness now how long? Since 1973 so how long is that? 45 years? So I've noticed that when, when I have a block most of the time it is because I'm trying to force myself to do something you know, I read something in Prabhupada's books or some devotee said, you have to do it like this. And so, I try to force myself to do it like that. And it, it blocks me. My heart just dries up and then I become doubtful. Maybe this process isn't working. I become disturbed. And I've discovered that not every time, sometimes there are other causes, but this is a big cause, like 85-90% of the time, when I have some difficulty in my spiritual life, is because I'm trying to force something artificially. That's it. I can't do that. It doesn't work. We're, we're not... Even machines, if you try to force a machine, it will break. Hmm? Yes? So patience means, mainly with patience means, that I can wait happily, and I will not force Force can be there in an emergency. If your child is picking up a sharp knife, you can force. If your child is running in front of a car, you can force. And some things you can use force. Temporarily 
briefly, for a brief amount of time. Temporarily, you can force yourself, you can force others, but it should be not our main natural. natural. So that's the main thing. And the main, also, patience means trust. But I have some trust that people will grow. So I was thinking, for me at least, the value of being patient is I don't get so angry and so frustrated. Most, most of my own anger and frustration comes because of impatience. Why doesn't this person understand? Why don't they do it? Why didn't they do it yesterday? Why isn't this happening? Bless you. It should already have happened. Also, we have much better relationships with others, especially the children, if we have patience. And it means that we're humble. We're not thinking, I'm the controller, I'm, the, I'm going to push everything. And it's actually required. Rupa Goswami says we must have enthusiasm, patience, and confidence. So if you only have enthusiasm, that's Rajagun. If you only have patience, it's Sangun. <laughs> you want to have both enthusiasm and patience. Patience is also that I, I have some detachment from the immediate result. Immediate result may not be exactly what I want for myself and others. So there's a special value to being patient with the children. And again, this is just a summary, so I, I don't have time to teach the whole thing. But we, ha- we get an emotional relationship with different things. Just like I'm sure you have some smell or some taste or some place that brings out an emotion in you, yes? You've got a connection between an emotion and a smell, or an emotion and a food, or an emotion and a place, or an emotion and a, 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 some event, some activity. You had some experience in life that linked that emotion to that activity or that senses. Yes, we all have this. Sometimes you even just think about it. You just, oh, that place, that festival, that immediately you feel an emotion. So that can also be negative. It can be positive, it can be negative. I don't want to go to that place anymore. Because something happened. So we want to be very careful about what emotions are connected with Krishna consciousness for our children. If we are impatient with them, especially in teaching Krishna consciousness, we're going to have this connection between negative emotions and Krishna consciousness. And if we are patient in dealing with it, we'll have more of a positive connection. And as I said, children take, I mean, even adults, we all need repetition. We all need time to learn something. So I will not be an effective teacher if I want everyone to learn everything immediately. I won't be effective. I'll be a very frustrated teacher, but I'll not be an effective teacher. It takes time. It takes repetition. Some people will understand the first time, but that is unusual. That's unusual. Why is Shiva Prabhupada making the same points? Same basic points. God is a person. You are not this body. You cannot enjoy the material world. Over and over and over again. Because we don't get it the first time. The first time we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't go in. But practice, you understand. Yes, actually. Also, if we're impatient, we can become harsh and cruel. We become angry with the children. 
damages the child and damages us also. And we may give up teaching. I can't, I can't tolerate it anymore. So why do you think we become impatient? Some ideas? It's less time. Okay, we're under time pressure. Disorganized and So, a big thing is time pressure, that we feel we have to get something done at a certain time, and we become very impatient. Another thing is, we're not organized, and we get impatient with us. Something else? Our attitude that whatever I'm doing is right, so it, oh. should, it should follow that. Oh, I like that. Then we have this, this arrogance. Yeah. Attitude. Everybody has to do what I'm doing, I'm the authority. This is a big one, you know, I'm the teacher, I'm the authority, everyone has to, all the children have to listen to me right now, exactly the way I want them to. Yeah. Of course, do we do that? Do we listen to our authorities right now exactly the way they want us to? No. Anybody do that? No. <laughs> and we are adults. Very What else causes us to lose our patience? Expectation. That's a big thing. Basically, uh, expectations, where do they come from? They come from, where, do, what are the sources of our expectations? Expectation from others. From others, all right. So we have uh, the other teachers or the, the parents of the children. Many times the parents have unreasonable expectations for the teachers that they would never have for themselves. So for themselves as parents, uh, they'll be much more charitable. And they think, well, you're the teacher, you can do something impossible that I can't do. So, unreasonable expectations from the parents. Where else do these unreasonable expectations come from? The learner is very slow. Huh? The learner is slower than... Well, that's another cause of impatience. But as far as expectations, they come from other parents, and also from... I'm sorry. We don't, that we don't understand that they can't do it. Yes. So it comes from ourselves. That I have an unreasonable expectation. Yes. It says that expectations will damage others if they are too high or too low for too long. So again, this is something we need to adjust. I might come into the class with expectations here. If I see the children cannot do it, I go down a little bit. If I see that they're bored, I may make it up a little bit. But you, you, you have to want to move your expectations according to, in response. You know, the ultimate, absolute truth. What is the highest lila of Krishna? Highest lila. Rasalila. It's a, what is Rasalila? It is a? It's, what is it? It's a dance. It's a dance. So, the highest expression of truth is a dance. What does a dance mean? It means you're, it's rhythm and, it's, and harmony, and you're also in traditional Indian dances. The whole dance is not completely choreographed. Now, many times today we see people doing Bhartanacharya and Khatak, and they're doing to a recorded music. So if you're going to dance to recorded music, it is all choreographed. And when they're doing to recorded music, it is actually more like some Western dancing, like a ballet or something. But in traditional Indian dance, 
you're dancing to live music. And there is a, in Indian live music, the, it is equivalent to Western jazz, where you have a basic pattern and then you are improvising. You decide what is the raga, what is the tala, and then you're improvising. And if you've seen good dancers and good musicians in the traditional Indian style, they are communicating with each other. Yes. So the, the dancer is like, it's, it's a conversation between the dancer and the musician, and it's not all planned. It's not all planned. There's a, a basic plan, but they are communicating. When Krishna is dancing with the gopis, it's also like this. It's not that they choreograph the dance and they rehearse the dance. and Not like that. It is spontaneous. So they have their raga, they have their tala, and then it is spontaneous in the dance. So this is the highest expression of truth. This is the highest expression of truth. This is back and forth. So it should be like this with our expectations. I can come into a class thinking, okay, I'm going to teach this, and the children will learn this by the end of the class. But then I'm seeing, eh, they're not getting even the beginning. And then I go, okay, I'm going to do this. Or I see, oh, I'm teach- I want to teach this, they already know this. Impatience comes when I have this expectation, and it's going to be like that. And again, I'm trying to force everybody to be. I was just thinking, I was at the Sandipani Muni School in Vrindavan. I ran an English class there. So we had some extra time. I decided to teach them some children's songs in English about Krishna. So these children are learning English. And they're very poor children. They're not in their environment in home. They're not hearing much English. Uh, but they're, they're learning quite a bit. So I was teaching them this song. And I saw that I was going too fast. And I had to, so some things they could understand, other things I had to repeat, or other things they were saying it improperly. And you know, if you practice something wrong, it tends to stick. So as soon as I heard them practice, them, oh, I got to fix it immediately. Because if they practice wrongly, it will be stuck. So I immediately like slow down. And you know, at the end of the class, we did not learn the whole song. The last part we didn't learn. But it was okay. If I had tried to do the whole song, they would have learned it wrong. So this patience is also a reflection of this of the dance. And and having our expectations be flexible. We all why else do we become impatient? It's not going the way it's planned. Okay, we have a particular plan that we're attached to. Why else do we become impatient? What about my physical state? If I'm tired, I will tell you, if I am tired, if I am in pain, I don't have as much patience. If my stomach is hurting, my back is hurting, my head is hurting, I don't have as much patience. Because I'm using some of my patience energy 
for my own body. I think of it like I have this much patience energy, you know. And if there's something wrong with my body, some of it is going to them. I don't have that much to give somebody else. And it can also be not just physical, emotional. So if that morning you had some big fight with your husband or your mother-in-law or, you know, or you're worried about money, you don't have enough money in the bank, or, you know, some concern or, you know, your father just wrote, maybe he has cancer, you know, some worry in your mind. So you don't have physical pain, but you have some kind of mental pain. So then also we don't have as much patience. So what we need to do is, if I have some physical pain or if I have some mental anxiety, I need to be aware of that. I need to be aware of that and probably intentionally lower my expectations for that. Like being pilots aren't supposed to fly to detect some nicotine in the blood or... Something like that, yes. Now, another problem we can have, this is very important, is that children also have physical and mental factors that hinder their learning. So we've talked a lot about shifting our expectations, we've talked about shifting our teaching methods, but we also want to notice what's going on with the child. Now, even as adults, sometimes I'm not so aware that the reason I'm impatient is that I'm tired or I'm hungry or I'm upset with my mother-in-law. Sometimes we're not even honest with ourselves that that is the real reason. We are saying, no, it's this thing. But it's not. It's something else. So with children, it's very difficult for them to understand this about themselves. If you have a child who is uncharacteristically ill-behaved, so usually their behavior is here, and right now their behavior is here. I mean, if it's normal for the child to be a disturbance, that's another thing. Some children are always a disturbance. But if you have a child who's much more of a disturbance than usual, first thing, physical. The child is probably tired, or hungry, or sick. Next thing, emotional. Maybe they got. Maybe the child had a fight with the mother. Maybe mother and father had a fight. Maybe mother and father are worrying about money, and the child is hearing this. Maybe there's some emotional anxiety for the child. Nine times out of ten, or maybe more, maybe like ninety-nine times out of a hundred. If a child is uncharacteristically ill-behaved, and if it's just that child, it's not your class in general. If it's your class in general, there's you need to switch methods, you need to switch expectations. But if it's one child who's usually better behaved, you're probably seeing a physical or emotional thing that has nothing to do with your teaching. And in this regard, you also want to look at physical and emotional atmosphere of your classroom. So if there's no oxygen in the room, now some people try to teach in this room, all the windows are closed, AC's not on, the windows are closed, and there's, you know, 40 kids in the room, and there's, there's literally not enough oxygen in that room. How long can we live without oxygen? A few minutes only. And the brain doesn't work if there's not enough oxygen. So is there air in the room? I mean, this is a very big thing. 
So what's our next need? After air, what's our next physiological need? Food. No, food you can go weeks and weeks without food and still go. What is the one thing we need after air? No, you can go many days without water. What do you need next after air? Okay, well to learn you need some light, yes, so that could be too much light, not enough light, light shining in their eyes. But you're very close. What we need is temperature. If it's too hot or too cold, we will die. About 20 minutes, if it's too hot or too cold, we'll die. So we need proper temperature. So if the room is very, very hot, or the room is, I don't think here it ever gets very, very cold, but it could be the AC is on too low. Sometimes AC is on like 17 degrees. Sometimes I go like in India in the hot season and they have the AC on at 70. So if it's too hot, it's too cold. If there's not enough oxygen, is it the lights are too bright? Recently in my course, I was teaching at the ILS and the room is super bright lights that are just shining in everyone's eyes. <laughs> and so we, we took them and we like Move them, yeah. So I want you to look at that kind of thing also. What is the setup of the room? What is the seating arrangement? Are people comfortable? Like Robert said, you cannot preach philosophy to hungry people. If people are poor and hungry, first you have to feed them, then you can preach philosophy. So this is true in general. If people can't breathe, if they are too hot, if they are too cold, if there's not a comfortable seat, if they can't see anything, if they're all crowded, they can't sit, if they, then trying to force and yelling, <laughs> we do need to fix the situation. So sometimes we become impatient because we're trying to force our children to learn when the physical environment is not right. Okay, so I, have, I made a little list of how we can achieve patience and at the same time have high standards. So first, I've been saying this many times, expect that repetition is part of learning. Just, it is. Repetition is part of learning. And that's all. It is. And expect what I, I told you, my nature is to be impatient. So I tell myself, Ermila, be prepared to repeat everything a hundred thousand times. Then you can become impatient on the hundred and one thousandth time. So have the expectation of how to repeat. And repeat maybe in different ways. Expect the children, by their very nature, are not very good at sense control. And they're not very good at paying attention. And this quality of children actually really helps them when they are young. When, when we are little babies, we have to learn a tremendous amount in a very short time. Most of us are learning language in two, three years. So the way that Krishna has designed us is when we are little babies, our field of attention is everywhere. Babies cannot focus very well on anything. They're, that's why we can distract them so easily, which is a very good thing. But they have this broad 
awareness because they have to learn so much. And at around age four or five, the child starts to be able to focus. But not really until they are like seven or eight, and not really, really until they are like 16. So because when we are young, we are the most receptive to learning. And you know what? If you're completely focused, it's hard to learn. You have to have a little broad. So this lack of ability to focus and this lack of, of control is part of what helps the child to learn. Again, don't try to force children when they're seven to be 16. But you want to work with the child's natural distractibility. So if you expect that of children, it's part of the beauty of children. And it's part of the, the, the way that the human life is designed. We talked about using a variety of methods. If you only use some methods, some children will not be able to learn and then you'll become impatient with them. Also, make sure you have some breaks in what you're doing. So, some activity, some, something that's active, something that's not so active, some active that's not so active. Some changes, some breaks. Remember to look for children who are hungry, sick, or under some kind of stress. Make sure that the, the the level of the material you are teaching and the kind of material you are teaching is giving the children a little challenge, but not too much. If it gives no challenge, they're bored and they misbehave. If it gives too much challenge, they're frustrated. So this was really just a summary. Um, we didn't have time to go into this in depth, a little like a refresher summary, but I hope you found this helpful. Um, we take just like five minutes if there's anything anybody wants to discuss. I think also we need to maintain like cordial uh, relationship between the teachers. Sometimes there's some misunderstanding and the child immediately perceives it. Uh, also, we need to be patient with ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Any other thoughts? Teaching a small group of children, there's going to be a different kind of outcome. Then a larger group, yeah. Teaching little bit of youth, adult children. Ah, you're showing by the age, definitely. What's the ideal ratio? 15. 15. At least that's the research. The research is that there's a change in the quality of teaching between 15 and 16 students per teacher. You know, some of that depends on the age, though. You know, young children who cannot read and cannot write require a lot more teacher intervention. And then Prabhupada said age 10 to 16. My experience is it's more like about age 12 to 16. He calls this the critical years, the turning point, and the main time to study philosophy and be careful of, of what their association is. So when I was a Gurukul teacher, I gave the main attention to the children who could not read, 
like age five to seven before they could read well. And then again at like 12, 13, 14, maybe 15. Those two ages, like five to seven and 12 to 15. I really tried to give them a lot of attention. 12 to 15, really to work on logic, philosophy, you know, depth of understanding. And with five to seven, keep it moving, keep it fun, keep it variety. I felt like age seven or eight to twelve didn't require that much. Interve- they were more able to do things on their own. And so that also may be how many teachers you have. For I would feel more comfortable if you with twenty-five children for a teacher if they're between ages eight and twelve, eight and eleven, but not if they're five, six, seven. And if you're going to have a lot of students, older students with a teacher, some of the students will be lost. (coughs) The more introverted, quiet students will be lost. They won't participate. But, you know, we do what we can. Sometimes you have to teach more kids than that. Okay. There was one year that I, in Google, where I was teaching 30 children without an assistant from age 5 through 18. You just do it. It's not ideal. Any other discussion? Anybody want to have? When we have this now upcoming, there's a workshop in the temple, around 200 to 300 children are welcome to. So that time we really face one particular issue about um, meat eating. Sometimes the outside parents, not the older children, the outside parents are forcing them. This has all the nutrition and all. And sometimes it comes in our syllabus, some small point of uh, this particular topic. So how do we tell? It happened one time. The next day, then the parent is uh, angry, yeah, offended. Like, you know, you have to decide on what is your mission and vision of your education program. So, it's just like if we're preaching to people in the West, what I'm telling people now, you can preach about Varna, but not Ashram. To modern people, if, you know, if they haven't already accepted, even if they've already accepted Krishna consciousness, it's very hard to preach about ashram. Even to our own members. Ashram means you get married young. Who's getting married young anymore? Are people getting married 25, 30, 35? And then renounce when you're 50? Who's renouncing at 50? People are getting married at 40. So, and then what to speak of other things that we will not discuss here. But it's very difficult to preach about ashram in the modern world. But Varna you can preach about. You can talk about how we should work according to our nature. You can talk how we should do work for a sacrifice for the Lord, how we work together in a functional community. That you can speak about to anybody. But if you start talking about ashram, you'll have a big problem. And then they won't, they'll reject Krishna consciousness. So you have to decide, according to your audience, what is your goal? But at some point, you need to bring up this is our regular principles. 
I mean, at some point, it needs to be there. This is... It's not like you're going to hide it forever. I mean, somebody really takes up Krishna consciousness, then you're going to say, hey, you have to get married. You cannot just live boyfriend-girlfriend. You, you can't have that go on and on and on. When you're talking to new people, you're not going to immediately say this. Or they will just get up and stand up and they will walk out the door. And that, why? Why alienate them on this point? You understand? Why? First get them to chant Hare Krishna, get them to offer their food, get, get them to do something, and gradually you can bring up these things. But at some point you have to bring it up. How long are we going to not bring it up? That way we do not read Prabhupada's books, and you read five pages in Prabhupada's books or something about meeting. In some places, the problem is demigod worship. Do you have a problem with demigod worship also? You want, in China, their problem is about ancestor worship. <laughs> the Chinese devotees. It's interesting. The, uh, some of the devotees who are physically elderly, 60, 70, 80 years old, they said their children are very upset that they've stopped worshiping, that their parents have stopped worshiping the ancestors. You, you see according to the particular attachment of your audience, and don't hit that on day one, two, three, four, but at some point you have to hit it. Now, we can't compromise on this thing for eternally. At some point you have to hit it. At some point you have to say, look, I'm sorry, this is a vegetarian society. If you want your children to get an education here, we are going to be promoting vegetarianism at some point. I would not do it like the first one, two months, but at a certain point you have to do it. How are you going to avoid it? I don't see how you will avoid it. This is my opinion. You can have a different opinion, that's okay, but my opinion is, I, I would rather see, at some point you have to bring this up. Not on the first day, like, you know, Prabhupada didn't go to people on the first day and say everything. You know, like on this marriage, so Satchavama told me, you know, she and her husband, they were just boyfriend and girlfriend. And so first Prabhupada said, so do you want to get married? Do you want to get married? And then it was, you know you should get married. And then Sunday is a good day to get married. And then you need to get married on Sunday. <laughs> so, you know. Absolutely, like that. Especially if something is people's heavy. And everyone has different, every culture. You go to the West, you can preach about vegetarianism to Westerners immediately, in the first five minutes. Not a problem. If you're in America, or France, or Australia, immediately, first day, you can talk about But other things you cannot talk about. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, you have to judge what is your own. Yeah. At a certain point, you have to tell them, I'm sorry. We are a vegetarian society. If you want to send your child here, this is what we're going to teach. If you don't like it, please remove your child because we're not going to, um, we're not going to support Nididi just to make you happy. You know, at a certain point, you have and you can even tell people, you know, we, we will bring this up 
after four or five months of school, this, this is part of our curriculum. I mean, maybe you even have to tell this when they enroll their child, and you say, you know, we are, these are our regular principles. No eating meat, fish, or eggs, no intoxication, no illness, of sex, no gambling. We will talk about this. We talk about this in our sixth time, our sixth month. And if you don't want your child to hear that, they can stay the first five months, and then you should remove them because this is what we are going to do with them. And tell them from day one. And some people will send their child for five months and then remove them. That's my suggestion. You have to discuss among yourself, say what you want. We have eight days of workshop. So maybe in the pamphlet you can add. Yeah, and if they don't want to come that day, then they don't come that day. You can say, day six, we will talk about the value of vegetarian diet. Then they can stay home that day. How can we not preach against me? It's not possible. We have to say. Okay, I think we have to leave, yes? Yes. Okay. I hope you have found this helpful. Yes. Shiva Prabhupada, teach